Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Strange Familiars. If you have experienced something strange, if you've seen a cryptid, a ghost, a UFO, and you want to tell your story, you can email us, strangefamiliarspodcast at gmail.com. If you have a short encounter and you want to leave it as a voicemail, you can do that, 717-347-8554. That's definitely the quickest way to get us your story. At this point, I'm very backed up on interviews. You can call and leave a message. If you get cut off, you can just call back and continue your story. Again, that's 717-347-8554. Tonight, I'm going to be talking with Lex Nover about his book, Nightmare Land, Travels at the Borders of Sleep, Dreams, and Wakefulness. It is an excellent book, and I was happy to have Lex on. Covers things like sleep paralysis and parasomnias, sleepwalking, sleep deprivation hypnagogia, 
alien abduction encounters, and more. But before I get to my conversation with Lex, I want to thank our patrons. Thank you so much, patrons. We could not do Strange Familiars without our patrons. If you'd like to help us make Strange Familiars and get extra content besides, you can become a patron at Patreon. That's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. There are many different levels of support there where you can get things like t-shirts, books, copies of my music CDs. There's even an original art level where you can get a piece of original art from me every month. You can check out all the levels of support at Patreon. Again, that's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. Even at $3 a month, though, you can get extra episodes of Strange Familiars. We do one full extra episode every month for our patrons. Often we do more. If you'd like to help us out and you do not like the idea of a monthly subscription like Patreon, you can always go to strangefamiliars.com and look in the show notes. There you will find a paypal.me link where you can make a one-time donation via PayPal. And the way everyone can help is to share the show on social media. Make sure to hit like and subscribe wherever you're listening to the podcast. And leave us those nice five-star reviews because that helps get the podcast in front of new potential listeners. So now let's talk to Lex Nover about Nightmareland. I'm talking with Lex Nover, who has written a book, Nightmare Land, and this book is perfect for Strange Familiars listeners, and you're about to find out why. It deals with a lot of these sleep issues that we talk about so much on the show, and Lex has been the web producer for Coast to Coast AM since 2002, and if you're not familiar with Coast to Coast, they're sort of the flagship paranormal radio show that kind of got us all started, all of us uh, paranormal podcasts and stuff. Lex, uh, welcome to Strange Familiars. Hey, Timothy. Thanks so much for having me on your show. Really appreciate it. So is this your first book? It is my first book. What made you interested enough in this sleep phenomena to write a whole book on it? Well, I was originally writing about kind of scary things that happen during the night. So it's sort of a natural tie-in to sleep phenomena. And I was looking very closely at sleep paralysis and as I delved further into it, I started to see this relationship between strange phenomena and sleep, sleeping, dreaming, and uh, states adjacent to that. So you cover a variety of, of different sleep and dream-related topics, from sleep paralysis and hypnagogia, parasomnias, and sleepwalking. Out of all that stuff, what do you think was the most like shocking or surprising story that you found? Well, there were several things that, that surprised me. There are a number of stories that are, have kind of shock elements to them. I have a chapter on sleepwalk murders and the idea that someone could kill in their sleep and not, not be consciously aware of it is something that's, that's really strange and, and freaky to consider. But there were a number of surprises to me, like the hypnagogic state. I wasn't planning on spending that much time in in the book. And then I discovered that it was really this fascinating gateway 
into psi phenomena and communications with the dead, as well as creativity. So that that was a surprise to me. And the other thing I would have to say is this idea of non-REM sleep state. REM is the rapid eye movement state that we associate with dreams, these kind of narrative dreams. But what really surprised me is that during non-REM sleep or slow wave deep sleep, we're actually dreaming then too. They're, they're different types of dreams than the narrative ones in, in REM, but there's this content that's going on all the time, and for the most part, we don't remember it at all. So that raised certain questions and curiosities for me. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, it's so fascinating. The book is, like I said, for Strange Familiars listeners, it's, it's a must read, I have to say, because we cover so many of these topics. And before we jump in further, how many of these sleep-related phenomena have you yourself experienced? Uh, quite a number of them, and I get into some first-person accounts in the book. And one of the uh, realizations in, in the research is that a lot of these are, are not that uncommon. It's just in the past and pre-internet, people didn't speak about them. And I think it's just been in recent decades with the growth of these sleep clinics across uh, North America that people, uh, these different conditions are coming out of the woodwork. And some of them are, are more playful and innocuous and other ones are, are more serious and can even be dangerous. But I've had a couple of sleep paralysis episodes. I've experimented with hypnagogia as well as uh, lucid dreaming. And um, yeah, so a little bit of a sampler pack, I guess you could say. <laughs> what about you, Timothy? I've definitely had sleep paralysis, and I've had my uh, encounter with the, the little grays. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not super happy about them. The podcast listeners have heard it a million times, but uh, it's a kind of sort of typical uh, abduction experience I had. Not real pleasant. I'm not a fan. Not a fan of sleep paralysis myself. But uh, in talking to people, so I've made it a, a habit of asking people. So, I, you know, I'm talking to people every week. Most often it's witnesses. It's, it's rare that I have an author or, or a researcher on. And one of the questions I ask them, though, no matter if they've seen Bigfoot or, you know, have had a, an encounter with Grays or whatever it is, I ask people on the regular, have you in your life ever experienced sleep paralysis? And the number of people who have experienced paranormal phenomenon who also experience sleep paralysis is astounding. I very rarely get someone say, no, I've never had that. Now, do you have any thoughts on that? Like, do you think these things are connected? Do you, I mean, some people are you kind of use sleep paralysis as an explanation for paranormal events. I've kind of started to see it more as almost a symptom. Well, I think there is, is an interesting tie-in, and I think I did run across some statistics that indicated that a lot of these different things are, are looped together. For instance, with sleep paralysis, uh, out-of-body experiences, and things of that nature are often uh, accompanied in the experience. So it, some people actually have more positive experiences of sleep paralysis, where it's it's like a gateway for spiritual experiences and, and things of that nature. And uh, I think with a lot of these different things, it seemed like there was there was kind of a, a psychic phenomena tie-in. I certainly found that 
with the research into bedroom alien abductions. Uh, people that experience that seem to have a whole host of, of phenomena. And then with things like psychic attacks, it seemed like there was a connection between poltergeists and hauntings and, and things related to um, those kind of disturbances. When we talk about these things, we have encountered a lot of what John Keel termed these bedroom invaders that people see. And the big one for us on the show has been this flannel man that we call him. Other people call him uh, plaid man, lumberjack man, etc., etc. My wife saw him. She woke up and saw him standing at our feet and scared her. She woke me up screaming. But she said he didn't look particularly menacing or anything. He looked surprised to see her. And I spoke about it once early on in the podcast. And all of a sudden, I started getting a flood of stories from people. I said, I've seen this guy, too. I've seen this guy, too. Most often, it's uh, people wake up. It's not always hypnagogic because sometimes people say that, you know, they literally get up and get a drink of water and then come back and, and see this guy. Did you run into any stories of that guy or anything like him? I didn't particularly look at that kind of thing in terms of, I don't know if that would be classified as like a shadow person. We've had a lot of stories on Coast to Coast about the so-called hat man, mm -hmm. who is uh, allegedly more of a sinister character. And then there's those sort of creepy pasta things like Slender Man that it seems like there could be being birthed first from people's imagination. And then somehow like Tulpas, they actually have some kind of paraphysical presence or that that people sense them it it so i what i ran across with the entities that people see during sleep paralysis they seem to be more idiosyncratic like people weren't seeing the same thing every time it seemed like in each case it, it was something different but this idea that you mentioned of the beings being startled that someone had just awakened and seen them, I, I ran across that. And that was, that was really interesting to me because it suggested this idea of almost like a hidden ecosystem. If these beings were feeding on our energy in some way, and they think that we're asleep or in that, that non REM sleep state that I was mentioning there, they could kind of come and go without our being aware of it. But instead of it necessarily being this parasitic or horrible thing, I wondered if maybe it was more like a symbiosis that they these entities, if they exist in this kind of paraphysical dimension, don't necessarily mean us harm. They're just kind of transiting in their own interactions that converge with us at times. It's strange because what I'm finding is different people from different cultures you know, all over the world are seeing the same things. So sometimes it's this, this flannel man guy. Sometimes it's, we've got another one that we've just termed the nightmare creature that people say it looks like kind of like the green goblin from Spider-Man, very kind of sallow looking stretched face kind of thing. And then of course, shadow people, like you mentioned in the hat man. And then these, I, I think you do have this in your book. Some, we've got some accounts of these like inky shadows. They're almost like squid like things that people see. I mean, are we talking about some kind of other reality, you know, where there are these, these sort of dream characters exist outside of our reality? 
but are in fact, you know, these same things that people are seeing when they enter the dream states? Yeah, for me, it's, it's really an open question. I don't weigh firmly down on one side or the other. In the book, I, I try to present the scientific or medical explanations behind a lot of these, but also give, give equal, um, equal balance to the paranormal side and the idea that we could be in certain states or certain brain states, these kind of mixed states that I've come to think of almost like cocktails of consciousness, where we're mixing elements of being awake and asleep, that we might have access to these other realms and being able to have these kind of communications that are blocked out during our normal waking state. By the way, I like that you kind of remain agnostic in that. And, uh, you know, reading your chapter, and, and I realize you could have done probably a whole book just on uh, alien abduction phenomena. And I use abduction in quotes because in my case, I don't think I ever left my bed. I think it was probably an out-of-body experience. But you kind of remain agnostic and you sort of present, you know, the, the different theories, the different sides of it. I like that because, I mean, in the end, who can know? Yeah, and, and particularly with sleep paralysis, I mean, the neurological explanation, which has some, holds some water in the idea that, well, we're paralyzed and we're paralyzed during REM because we're not, we don't want to get up and start acting out our dreams. So that, the idea that that carries over, but then the superimposition of the these characters that if the neurologist is saying, well, that's just a character from your, your dream that's kind of superimposed onto your waking state, I, f I find that harder to, to jibe with the experience. It, it feels like it's, it's something other than that. And certainly the beings that people see that are actually in their real bedrooms are, are quite palpable <laughs> and real. It doesn't feel like some kind of hallucination or, yeah. or a dream character kind of blending in. Yeah, exactly. Especially, like I said, when I get these accounts from these people just, you know, describing the same thing over and over again. These, you know, people just describing the same. It's well, it's usually not the same guy. He's usually dressed the same. But uh, that nightmare creature is very specific. That people are describing, you know, the same thing. You do have a something in there about uh, the black dogs. Now we have noticed in some of these flannel man accounts. Also, he's accompanied sometimes by these black dogs, but. Uh, that's a common saying, I guess, among truckers, is it? Yeah, I included uh, some details about that. And I did a chapter on sleep deprivation because a lot of strange stuff can happen when people go without sleep and, and become some of these blended states that we're talking about. The black dog actually uh, dates back a millennium to lore from the U.K., where sightings of them are often considered an omen of death, and sometimes they're described quite bizarrely as having glowing red eyes or as large as a house and, and really having these kind of phantom-like qualities. But the particular lore with truck drivers is that if you're, if you're driving along and you see a black dog on the side of the highway one time, it's like, okay, that's weird, there's a dog on the highway. But if you see the black dog a second time, then that's that's a warning that you're dead tired and you need to pull over and get some shut eye before it's too late. But because you can imagine what would happen if a trucker falls asleep at the wheel. And sure. these these types of 
instances are, are called micro sleep, where someone is is just so sleep de- deprived that the brain will just go into these little bursts of sleep up to 30 seconds at a time. So that would be a real living nightmare for a trucker to <laughs> go into one of those states. Yeah. Well, speaking of sleep deprivation, one of the, the most frightening things in your book that I found, I actually found this horrifying, like it was like horrifying to me, where the uh, the tales of the fatal familia insomnia, which is, I guess it's related to mad cow disease. Yeah, that was that was a new one for me. I had not heard of this this rare and somewhat bizarre syndrome. So when I when I ran across that, I I think there were a number of things that that happened as writing the book and having worked all these long years at coast to coast. I thought, well, I've heard every <laughs> bizarre right. thing and under the sun, and I was like, okay, well, there's a new one among a number of of things. But yeah, it it started in a family in Venice, and they were thought to be kind of cursed over the years because it it went back over 250 years. They were a wealthy family, but when people would get into their 50s, they would come down with this this strange ailment. And basically, they were unable to sleep and would just kind of fall into this, this strange netherland where they were neither awake or asleep and then generally die within six to six to 12 months. And it wasn't until the 1980s that um, some research started to be done and this whole connection uh, they were able to get a brain donated of one of the family members after he died and that's when they found out it was this rare prion disease like you mentioned similar to to mad cow prions are are very bizarre (laughs) in and of themselves they're they're not alive and yet they act like bacteria and start kind of propagating themselves when there's a a genetic flaw. And so they were turning parts of the brain into these kind of Swiss cheese areas. And the part specifically was that that regulated sleep. So it turns out that the people that had this rare ailment, they could never actually get that full sleep because that switch in the brain was was deteriorated. So they're really um, stuck in in this, this horrible limbo. And um, now there's there's work, promising research being done. So there, there's hope. It's a very rare disease. I think it's only like 30 or 40 families around the entire world that that are afflicted with it. Yeah, it's it just sounds horrifying. Yeah, prions are they're a protein, and they I guess they replicate themselves. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it just I mean for whatever reason that one just shook me. I don't know if you saw it. There was. Oh, it was, a, it was an internet story going around that supposedly supposedly happened in Russia, and I don't know if it was ever true or not. Uh, but it had a, like a horrifying picture of someone who looked very skeletal, and and they said that they had kept him up for I don't know how how long. They just basically tormented these guys by keeping them awake. I don't know if you ran across that. I did see that picture and was, it was fascinated. Um, I, I think it was later revealed to be a hoax, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. But I do kind of get into the use of sleep deprivation as torture in the book, which has a long and unfortunate history. Yeah. Going back to like the, um, the Renaissance period, I think. Well, and I'm not sure how, you know, much medically you got into this, uh, this fatal familial insomnia, but I mean, do sleep pills 
help for them sleeping pills or they is it just it doesn't even work after a while there was one case that i looked at that that uh, was really intriguing uh, he's referred to in the literature as df and he was the son of a radio host i think in the 50s or 60s that was into nutrition and health so he had kind of this unusual background and he tried a whole battery of different techniques to try to actually get some sleep using all sorts of different drugs and concoctions and, and did have some success. He was even even had like a sleep deprivation tank for a while that he would get into and sleep for, for short periods. And it was a really interesting case because he, he actually talked about the state of of being awake actually had some spiritual and positive dimensions for him. And though he eventually died, I think he li- ended up living longer than any other uh, FFI patient. I think he was able to live for a number of years by trying all these techniques. Right. Wow. Yeah. It's, it just, I mean, that just seems like a horrifying way to go for some reason. I don't know why that struck me so hard, but it did. Yeah. And I think, it's hard to say what the state of mind of the person going through it is. In in some ways, maybe it isn't that torturous for them, but for the living and loved ones to see see their uh, close person or family member going through this, I think that would be incredibly scary and nightmarish. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, some of your stories seem to suggest like almost in another reality, and we got into this a little bit talking about the, the characters people see during sleep paralysis, but it's maybe most dramatically demonstrated in your chapter in lucid dreaming. And uh, the story I'm thinking about in particular is the woman who put the, the man who dreamed about the woman who put the cigarette out on his hand. Yeah, that was, that was a really uh, kind of uh, sort of funny, but I'm sure terrifying experience for the, the dreamer. Uh, what happened was, this is his his self-report about this to a, a, a dream researcher, but he was at this swanky party in this penthouse overlooking the city, and there was jazz music playing, and a beautiful woman was, was sitting on, on his lap. And then he realized right in the middle of that, like, oh, this is actually a dream, and I'm laying asleep in a bed in a cheap rented room in Chicago. And somehow he knew that his alarm was about to go off. So he has this, this realization and that's when he became lucid in the dream. And, um, the woman asks him like, Oh, are you having a good time? And he was like, yeah, I'm having a great time, but my alarm's about to go off and, um, all this will be over. And she was like, Whoa, what are you talking about? What do you mean? And he's like, this is just a dream. Uh, I'm laying, laying in bed, actually. And she got really annoyed and offended. And she, she was like, I'll show you <laughs> whether this is a dream or not. And she took her lit cigarette and put it out on his right hand. And then he instantly woke up and claims that there was a, a burn in his hand and even cigarette ashes there when he woke up in physical reality. So it's an interesting question as to whether maybe he was a smoker and had left fallen asleep with a cigarette or if there was some kind of bleed through effect. But certainly I think it demonstrates the idea of 
certain dream characters can be quite independent and and it makes a person wonder whether some dream characters are not people we're just conjuring up but have their own independent reality right there there's even a story in there that you know it, it sort of hints at the idea maybe of of someone in, possibly encountering other lucid dreamers in their dream i'm thinking about the one where where the guy said they they seem to be waiting for him to become lucid yeah, I, be- I believe that was uh, Robert Wagner, who's uh, kind of a lucid dreaming extraordinaire, has a few books out about it. And his personal experiences are are really kind of mind-boggling to consider. He's he's done some uh, quite a bit of research on this whole idea of dream characters and even this uh, reality uh, kind of behind the dream where he, he talks to the dream itself. But that particular instance that you were mentioning, I thought was was kind of powerful. This idea that these people that he was hanging out with uh, had like a complete change of awareness when he became lucid. They all like cheered and were like, "Yay, we were waiting for you. And And it really struck me that in our normal dream state, we are in a way kind of sluggish or sort of semi drunk, like we're just we're just not. Uh, a completely aware person that, that we could be. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. So you go into uh, lucid dreaming a bit, and uh, this is not, to my knowledge, now I was on a show, Nox Mente, where people talk about their dreams which, by the way, I don't know if you've been on that show, but you might look into that. It'd be an excellent show for you to talk about this book. But uh, they said, they're, when I was describing my dreams, they said, well, you you might be going lucid and not knowing it, which to me is kind of, I don't know, I don't understand that. Because uh, lucid being uh, the key term there, I would, I, I would think I would know it. But in any case, to my knowledge, I don't go lucid dream. But you sort of go over a little bit about these the way that people become lucid. They look for sort of triggers, you start practicing, I guess, during the day while you're awake. Just look for these different triggers to go into these lucid states. Right. There's reality checks where you look at different things and see if they change. For me, I use the text one. So, for instance, uh, I try to do it when I'm out riding my bike and I'll look over at like an address or signage and then see what the, the number or the word is and then turn my head away and then look back and if it stays the same, that's verification that you're in waking reality. But if it changes, that's an indicator that, that you're actually in a dream. The problem is, is that even if you practice this kind of reality checks during, during your waking hours, it, 
it rarely rarely translates over to the dream state mm-hmm. so um i i've tried a variety of things to induce lucidity and um I think some people have a natural ability at it and other people have to work a lot harder to create the environment for it. Now, as far as what you were saying about different kinds of lucidity, that that's something that I've experienced and also run across in the research that there are semi-lucid states, almost like a continuum, really. An example of that might be where I had a dream when I was writing the book about a friend who had recently died, and I think I had taken some galantamine, which is a supplement that kind of uh, wakes up some of your neurotransmitters and is said to increase the chances for lucidity. In this case, I didn't recognize that I was in a dream, but I did recognize that my friend was dead. So that I thought was kind of on the continuum of lucidity because typically if you see a deceased person in a dream, you're just like, wow, it's great to see you. And you might not realize that they were dead. And so this opened up kind of an interesting window. So I was able to kind of ask him a little bit about the afterlife. And he was saying some things that I could check later to see if he might have some kind of omniscient point of view into our world. So um, that was a very memorable, I guess you could call it semi-lucid state. Yeah, that's really interesting. Did you learn anything from him? Well, one of the things I checked out didn't prove to be true, that he had said that um, the people that had bought his house were not living there yet because they were doing some major renovations. And I was able to check up on that and found out that that wasn't the case. So it it made me wonder. I thought, well, this really did did seem like my friend. And so, again, it's one of those open questions. Was was that really his spirit visiting me? And is he, the information he was giving me might be true in whatever reality he's accessing. So it didn't, because the information didn't correlate in our world, didn't necessarily mean that that wasn't his spirit, per se. Right. Yeah, exactly. I've had people tell me with absolute confidence that, you know, if, if you dream of a, a loved one, a past loved one, it means they're they're passing on. And uh, I often think, how do you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Where's the rule book for this? It's, uh, you, you know, I don't, I'm just like, show your work. Because I, I don't know about that one. Because I've, I've dreamed, uh, my father passed last year, and I've had several dreams about him. At which dream did he pass on then, if I'm, you know, if I've had multiple dreams? You me. mean by pass on, sort of move to a further layer? Yeah, and... yeah, yeah. The, the, so I guess the idea is that when you're, when, that I've been told, you know, again, that, that if you dream about a deceased family member, that, that means they've kind of passed on to heaven or to the other realm or, or you know, whatever label you want to call it. But uh, like I said, I've, you know, what happens if you've had several dreams of this person, at which point, you know, did they pass on the first one or the others just dreams or, or, you know, where, what's the rule book with that? Yeah, I, years ago, I had a, a dream about my mom who had passed and we were on an airplane. And I think at some point, I realized that, that she had died and, and was very, very sad to experience that in the dream. And then she went and and sat, after talking with me she went and sat in her seat and then changed into someone else so I, I thought well maybe the obvious dream interpretation there is that like a reincarnation kind of idea or that 
she's she's moving on whether that was my subconscious trying to create that impression for me or if it was some kind of visitation from her who knows right yeah i didn't know if you ran into any sort of um old folklore that that talks about that aspect of, of dreaming you know dreaming about dead relatives or anything like that well, I did find uh, a number of things related to the hypnagogic state that surprised me in terms of relating to to this whole visitation. Um, you you probably have heard of what's called crisis apparitions, which is when people get uh, like a spiritual visitation and from say like their grandmother, and then they find out that right at the moment she was visiting them seems to correlate with when they died in the hospital or wherever. Mm -hmm. And what surprised me about this was it seemed like a lot of these experiences, maybe most, occur uh, adjacent to sleep or just as someone's waking up. So kind of in this hypnagogic umbrella that either just before falling asleep or just after waking up, I talk about in my experience with my father in, in my book that where he and I have this conversation just after I woke up and I just thought, oh, this is just some weird <laughs> flukish thing and wondering about how that happened and, and all of that. And then I realized that, OK, that actually could be classified as this this form of hypnagogia, which, um, again, to sort of go back to what I was saying before, that these types of communication seem to occur more readily in the states that are mixed, that are combining elements of sleep and wakefulness, which um, I guess is what happens when we're first waking up from sleep. Right. And just for a little side note, you kind of use hypnagogia as the general umbrella for the hypnopompic state and the hypnagogic state. I I do, because uh, one of the big researchers on this um, named Andreas Mavramatis wrote um, kind of like the Bible, I guess you could say, of hypnagogia. And he was the one that paired them together uh, with that term, even though hypnagogia generally had referred to just the state before you fall asleep. But it seemed like that the two states were so similar that I just thought I'd follow his 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 path to include them both together under sure. the same term. Yeah. Yeah. So having been around, you know, coast to coast AM for so many years, I'm sure you've run into any number of these alien abduction stories. When you went to write about that for the book. And again, like I said, I realized you could have probably devoted a whole book just to that, but you know, you got to cover all aspects of the, of the sleep phenomenon. Did you find out anything that was surprising or new to you or, or a different sort of take on the abduction phenomenon that you that you didn't have going into it? Well, I, I wanted to write about the phenomenon because uh, back in the 90s, there were a couple of psychologists that created uh, kind of a, um, a publicity storm or uh, basically stating in a kind of case-closed way that that uh, bedroom alien abductions were were nothing more than misidentified cases of sleep paralysis. So uh, because of that, I, I thought that that was a good tie-in to where I was going with the book. And I've, I've long been fascinated by 
the whole lore and and uh, stories of, of aliens. It, it has certainly been a mainstay of, of coast to coast. I think that there are certain similarities in that a lot of abductees report being paralyzed. But to me, the idea that there is a UFO kind of parked in their backyard or hovering nearby, that, that didn't really seem to make sense. So I thought, well, perhaps some of these are actually cases of of sleep paralysis. It's hard to know exactly, but it seems like it's a different a different pattern, kind of like what you were saying before about Plaid Man, that people are describing the same thing over and over again, these kind of repetitive examinations aboard UFOs or maybe seeing hybrid babies. And that, to me, didn't really fit in with the idiosyncratic and personal nature of sleep paralysis. So I think I started wondering if this alien thing had a certain similarity to what people experience in sleep paralysis, but was actually maybe a modality that these sort of paraphysical entities were using to have these communications with people. And the idea that... um, the storyline, I guess, that, that's presented to to the abductees, to me, doesn't really make that much sense in terms of, uh, you know, these kind of bad science fiction ideas like, well, we came from a planet where we're, we're you know, a dying planet and we need to replenish and just right. some of the barbaric things that they do to abductees. I'm not, I'm not sure what, what your experience was, but it, it all seems very crude. So... That made me wonder if it if it's some kind of theatrical production almost uh, as as some kind of psychological experiments, or if it's this idea of this feeding of energy, maybe that uh, fear and certain emotions are like a, a food or energy source to uh, I guess you could call them astral entities or, or beings that exist in in some other dimensional framework that occasionally intersects with ours and maybe we're open to these intersections when we have these kind of mixed brain states right yeah yeah i'm not sure if if this is a direct quote but i believe you 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 know someone you mentioned in the book talks about it being almost like a shared out-of-body experience which the more i kind of think about it the more i you know i learn about this stuff it that seems to be closer to what's would happen with me i think than anything else in other words I, like I, I often say i don't think i ever left my bed i don't think i was put on a ufo you know i don't think there were little scientists from another planet next to me it's a very real feeling it's very it was very very much real it wasn't dreamlike and it, in fact i've described it as as realer than than real life in a sense it was absolutely real but it was uh the physics didn't make sense as far as our, our physics in this world and the way they communicated um did not make sense either i didn't get mind speak but i got communicated with i, I got uh notions i guess did uh, there was there some sort of storyline or narrative they were conveying to you um no not so much i was very much in protest it was uh sort of the mental wave of wave of a hand just like you, you th- this doesn't matter you you don't matter like what, mm-hmm. your, pro- your your protest doesn't matter 
at once they in one of these instances they they did speak uh two of them in unison it's absolutely you know speaking with the same voice in unison is very 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 strange but uh you know it seems more like you know an, an out of body experience and you know you've related of course to the fae phenomenon and you know in the past of the folklore and and some of these uh you know incubus and and succubus kind of accounts and from the past and so forth and uh i think there's you know just my gut feeling says it's it's more akin to that than uh than little little scientists from another planet yeah i guess it's a sort of a jacques valet idea that these entities kind of drape themselves drape themselves in uh, different ways over different time periods, but it's not necessarily new beings that are are like, okay, now the space age <laughs> aliens are here. Right. There's an interesting case I, I thought that um, I would mention just in relation to this discussion. Uh, there's an avid lucid dreamer named Ed Kellogg who has published a, a number of really interesting papers online. And in one of them, he writes about a lucid dream that was a kind of alien abduction. So I thought that was a really interesting mix where the idea that someone could be lucid and aware that they're dreaming and then have this kind of creepy encounter with these these beings who are actually sort of goading him into these uh, brain experiments. Yeah, that's very, very strange. I, I guess it kind of shows that lucid dreaming isn't necessarily about the dreamer having, I think a lot of people think of it like, oh, it's just this big playground and I'll just have all these fun scenarios that I'll, I'll just, you know, kind of like Samantha and bewitched. <laughs> but actually there's, there's does seem to be this independent reality, even in, in your own lucid dreams that, um, you know, you could even have a nightmare in that state. Yeah, there was uh, the one you mentioned uh, would seem quite horrible where the guy seemed to be trapped sort of in a dream cycle where he could not get himself out of the, the lucid dream. Yeah, that's what's called false awakening. Uh, I've had a few of those not necessarily associated with lucid dreams over my lifetime. And it, it is uh, kind of a really freaky thing. But what happens is you wake up from the dream, you get up out of your bed, you, you go and, and you start your day. And then all of a sudden, something strange and weird, impossible even happens. And then that's when you realize, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm still dreaming. <laughs> and uh, the incident I describe in the book was uh, Robert Wagner again, who had seven false awakenings in a row. And at that point, it was almost like a little bit of a mini mental breakdown where you're just like, where, where is reality? Right. Yeah. It, he talks about all, like I, at some point in all that, he said, well, if I can't, whatever reality I end up in next is where I'm staying. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah, that's kind of horrifying. So how much has uh, like modern medicine with drugs like Ambien how much has that impacted these parasomnias and, and these related issues? I think Ambien is is implicated in quite a few of the different parasomnias, as well as some of the benzodiapans and, and different things that kind of give people these uh, states where unusual things can happen, whether they're waking up uh, unexpectedly. Funnily enough, though, one of the treatments for a lot of the parasomnias like sleepwalking is, is a low dosage of clonopin, which is, is kind of a sedative. 
And the, the idea there is, is that people that sleepwalk or sleep eat have kind of a low arousal threshold. And that means that they're more prone to having these partial awakenings, maybe a sound or a nudge or something will, will awaken them, but just in this weird half state where they're, they're get up and start sleepwalking. So something like clonopin acting as a sedative, um, reduces that threshold so they're able to to sleep more soundly but yeah i get into uh, some of the really bizarre things that have happened on ambien Uh, i think i referred to it as the ambien zombies where uh people wake up in jail cells and and things like that uh a lot of that uh, i think happened in the earlier years of ambien usage before the drug manufacturer made a bigger deal out of out of the the warnings, which one of the main ones is not to combine alcohol on it. Right. Yeah. Well, there's some pretty wild, like sleepwalking stuff in there. And there's, uh, you have a couple sleepwalk murders, which you, you touched on a little bit before. Now these people, one of them got off, uh, was found innocent because yeah, and I, I, I think a number of the people have, but. Are you, are you referring to the Kenneth Parks case in Canada? I believe so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's probably one of the most infamous of all of the cases. But he, uh, 1987, he ended up driving a car uh, 14 miles to his in-laws' home and then uh, stabbing, viciously stabbing them. One, one of them died and, and one of them survived. And after the incident happened, he took himself to the police station early in the morning and, and said, I, I think I've, I've killed my in-laws. But what was bizarre was that all 10 tendons on his, his hands had been completely cut through, I guess, from the kitchen knife kind of slicing in, into his hands when he w- was using, using it. And, but it, it appeared that he felt no pain. So it was kind of like, I think they, uh, called it um, like a, a um, sort of retrograde analgesia effect, but that was used in the trial as a piece of evidence, along with quite, he was able to show quite a bit of history in terms of having different sleep problems. There's a machine called a polysomnogram that's able to indicate different sleep abnormalities, and he had a whole family history of sleepwalkers and so he actually got off scot-free, and then the, the prosecution uh, sought to appeal the case. It went all the way to the Canadian Supreme Court, who upheld the, the original decision. But it, it certainly puts into question the whole idea of what do we consider voluntary and involuntary and then when are people malingering or sort of making this up as kind of a Twinkie defense? I think in his case, there could, is a good argument that, that he was in some kind of fugue or sleepwalking state. And yet it's such a heinous crime, it seems, seems kind of shocking for someone just to walk away without any penalty from that. Yeah, and, and his wasn't the only sleepwalk murder that you covered in the book, and others weren't so lucky in their defense. They they got convicted. Right, right. Um, it it uh, really varies from case to case, and I think in more 
recent ones, like the, the Scott Collater case in Phoenix, it ended up being a battle of the sleep experts, kind of like you see with a lot of murder cases where you, you pit the different forensic experts against each other. Right, yeah. Well, there's all these different bizarre like sleep activities that people were doing, and was it uh, there was some celebrity? Was it Montel Williams you had in there who who wouldn't have raw meat in his house? Yeah, yeah, that was in my section on on sleep eating. He would wake up in the morning and find bite marks in even in like frozen meats, and, <laughs> and so wow, he <laughs> just like I can't I can't keep this. Yeah. The house anymore but that access the sleep dis, uh, sleep eating is actually not that uncommon i think like one percent of the population uh, experiences that and uh like a lot of these parasomnias there's a certain amount of shame and secretiveness about about this it's just in recent years with these sleep clinics i was mentioning that people are are seeking to get help because there's i think it's just a strange feeling that when people are doing these things that they're not conscious of, it, it really is very unnerving and um, people don't don't <laughs> want to talk about it in, in, in a sense. Yeah, I can imagine. There's some of the cases you talk about people, you know, having sex during sleep basically and not realizing it and some of their partners being very happy with it and, and others not so much. Yeah, it really runs the gamut. There there was one case that was kind of amusing where the, the woman was reporting on her partner and she she wasn't really sure if he was asleep or not, but she was enjoying their <laughs> their conjugal relations. And then at one point while they were in, in the midst of it, he actually started snoring. <laughs> so that, that that was sort of the dead giveaway that <laughs> Oh boy, but uh, but uh, sexomnia, as it's called, that wasn't officially classified as a sleep disorder until 2014. So it really shows you how new a lot of these classifications are, even though the behavior is is probably you know as ancient <laughs> as 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 uh, as a lot of these. Right? Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm sure it goes back just as long as as the rest of them. So. Doing the research and writing this book, has it changed the way you yourself approach either sleeping or, uh, you know, think about dreams in general? I, I think it has. I think I've, uh, it feels like in spite of the the myriad scary accounts featured in the book, I also feel like it's it's really given me the sense of this kind of exciting portal, whether it's through lucid dreaming and trying to perfect and enhance that or something like hypnagogia, which really is accessible to everyone. And that really struck me as an interesting modality that people can, can attempt to glean creative ideas or different forms of communication from. Yeah. Was it in that chapter where the guy was talking about doing math problems in the dream state? Um, I think there was one instance of that, like in, in the chapter I have about nightmares. Okay, where, all right. Uh, yeah. It was kind of a um, humorous from the reader perspective, I, I think, because the idea that numbers would be uh, the subject of nightmares is, is seems sort of absurd. But in his case, it was just this, um, like the picturing of these numbers and these equations that were just becoming like these 
these massive weights of there was a kind of a, a horrific <laughs> aspect <laughs> to it. I can't think of anything I'd less be, rather be doing than than math problems in my dream. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lex, thanks so much for coming on Strange Familiars. Do you know what's next for you? You, you working on anything else? Um, not at the moment. I'm just kind of doing the publicity ride for the book. I have some ideas about uh, another book, but I uh, guess I'm going to ride this wave and, and see where it goes. I've, I've really enjoyed chatting with you, Timothy. In a, in a way, I feel like that I've really come home to be on your show, which feels like very welcoming to talk with someone who's so fluent in these these topics. Well, uh, thank you for coming on. Again, the book's Nightmare Land, Travels at the Borders of Sleep, Dreams, and Wakefulness by Lex Nover. It's on Amazon and I guess wherever else you, you can buy books, right? Yeah, uh, I have a website, nightmare.land. And uh, there's also a really cool audio book read by uh, Neil Helligers, which is kind of a fun experience in its, uh, in its own right. Oh, that's a great idea. That's a great idea to have a, an audio book of it. Very good. Well, everybody should check it out. Nightmare Land, like I said, it's probably a perfect book for Strange Familiars listeners. Lex, thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everybody. Before we go, I want to note that there will be a new version of my Wilderness Geist CD. There is a reason for this. Wilderness Geist is a part of an upcoming production. I'll be able to announce more soon. But in celebration of this, I am doing a special edition, which comes in a hand-stenciled bag with a special gifting coin, an extra CD, a little hex book, and a piece of quartz from Hex Hollow. So this new special edition will be out soon next week if you're interested in my music. And Wilderness Geist is kind of like the more dark ambient music I use as sound beds for Strange Familiars. So if you enjoy that, you will hopefully enjoy Wilderness Geist and pick up the special edition with all of the limited bonus items. I will mention it again, but it will be on Bandcamp, stonebreath.bandcamp.com. Links are always in the show notes. We will be back soon with another episode of Strange Familiars. And remember, you can always find us at strangefamiliars.com. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts, music, books, art, podcasts, and more. DarkHollerArts.com Intro and background music is by Stonebreath. Go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com for more. We are on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars, where you can also find the Strange Familiars gathering group. And we are on Instagram, at strangefamiliars. Hi, uh, my name's Taylor. This is a pretty short story, but uh, we talked about it on the Discord a little and figured I'd share it for the podcast. Uh, a few weeks ago, I had a dream. Uh, it was kind of near the tail end of the dreams where I was at a friend's house on a couch, laying on the couch, and it was late at night, and uh, everyone was sort of going to bed. And I looked up because I saw a light shining through a window, and I, I kind of, you know, it took me a second to uh, focus on it. 
but it was a man in a large bunny costume, like a pink bunny costume shining an industrial flashlight through the window at me. And I uh, got up and started moving towards him, and he kind of backed off. And uh, I was like, all right, that's weird. So I tried to go back to bed, and all of a sudden, it was he was there again, shining this light. And then I, I, I woke up after that and was like, wow, that's bizarre. All right, well, uh, thanks. See ya. Face the hate, 
book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.